welcome to the New York Historical Society. I'm Louise Spear, New York Historical's President and CEO, and it really is a tremendous pleasure for me to see all of you in our beautiful Robert H. Smith Auditorium. Uh, I want to make sure that everyone is aware of our great exhibitions on view now. Um, maybe many of you have already seen the Armory Show at 100. If you have not, it is an extraordinary, exquisite show, unusual for us with um, Picasso and Matisse and Cezanne and so on represented on our gallery walls. And um, I, I do urge you to see it if you haven't already. So um, please come back during regular museum hours. Uh, for the Armory Show at 100 and for two other wonderful shows, Gilded Age Portrait Show on our first floor, Gilded Legacy, and a new show that... So we, we, we are getting more and more members all the time, and I just invite the one or two people who are not members yet to become members. You get great discounts on our programs, free admission to the museum, and just speak with our colleagues on your way out tonight if you'd like to become make it 100% membership. So now's the time to ask everyone who has an electronic device to please turn it off. Cell phones, uh, cameras, recording, anything. So tonight's program, If Kennedy Lived, is part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speaker Series, which is the heart of our public programs. And as always, I'd like to thank Mr. and Mrs. Schwartz for their support which has enabled us to invite so many prominent authors and historians to New York Historical. I'd also like to thank our trustees and our chairman's council members and our audience for all their great work and support. And let's give them all a great hand. The program will last an hour and include a question and answer session. We invite audience members to, in, to approach the two standing mics in the aisles. And we ask that the, you do this so the speaker on stage can hear you, the audience can hear you, and we're also recording it for a podcast. Following the program, please join us for a book signing with Jeff Greenfield, whose book will be available for purchase in our museum store, which is on the 77th Street side. So tonight, we are so thrilled to welcome Jeff Greenfield, former host of PBS news show Need to Know and former senior political correspondent at CBS and ABC News. A five-time Emmy Award winner, Mr. Greenfield also served as CNN's senior analyst for all political coverage for almost 10 years. Prior to becoming a commentator and analyst, Mr. Greenfield served as a speechwriter for Senator Robert F. Kennedy and then as chief speechwriter for New York City Mayor John Lindsay. He is the author of numerous books, most recently of Kennedy Lived, the first and second terms of President John F. Kennedy, and alternate history. Please join me in welcoming Jeff Greenfield. Thank you. Hi, good evening. I, I have now navigated the toughest part of this evening, which is getting on stage without falling down. Um, Thanks for being here. I, you may not know this, but you are a living embodiment of the first rule of political advance work that I learned from Jerry Bruno almost 50 years ago. And the first rule of booking a hall for any candidate is you always book a relatively smaller room than you think you need. 
And the reason is the press then has to write that the candidate spoke to an overflow crowd. <laughs> if you book the same number of people in a big room, you spoke to a half-empty room. So you now have a lesson in political history. Um, I want to reiterate the fact that uh, when I'm done, I'm going to leave time for questions. Uh, it's in some ways my favorite part of the evening because I know what I'm saying, but invariably questions can be asked that make you come up short and realize I didn't think of that. All that I ask is that we come to a joint common understanding of what a question is. Because a 10 minute speech followed by so, this is not a question, and I have no tact about this. Um, the other thing I should say by way of introduction is that this, this building holds a special affection in my life, but possibly not for the reasons that members would guess, which is that for more Wednesday evenings in November than I can count as a child, as a parent, and as a grandparent, I have stood across from this building watching the balloons blow up, <laughs> being progressively filled with gas, which is a perfect training for a political analyst, if you think about it. Um, so here I am. So, so this is what I want to do in, in this talk. I want to explain just briefly why alternate history is worthwhile. A lot of historians uh, disdain it. They think it's a parlor game. As one said, it's like asking, what if Spartacus had a jet? Um, <laughs> And it, it is often the province of science fiction and fantasy, or in the hands of Philip Roth, a great novelist, a, a brilliant exercise in speculative fiction, uh, The Plot Against America. But um, there is a point to this. Uh, Michael Beschloss and uh, Doris Kearns Goodwin th think enough of its possibilities to have helped me in my last couple of books. But the point about, about alternate history for me is that it demonstrates the vagaries of fate. Most historians will argue, look, what happened, happened. And that's all that matters. And there's an implication among some of them that that's all that could have happened. But it is, it is common sense, and your own life will tell you this is not true. Think about your own life. I've, here's how I think of mine. 16 years and eight months and 20 days ago, um, at the last minute, a woman in Santa Barbara, California, came to dinner to say hello to my mother that she'd known her in another life. We've been together 16 years, eight months, and 19 days. I, my desperate desire to get into a class at Yale Law School uh, led me to, to a rare uh, over-preparation for a class, which impressed the professor enough that the next day when Robert Kennedy's senior staff called him for a recommendation, he gave me one, and that's how I wound up there. So the kinds of fates that will decide who have you spent your life with, what work have you done, uh, what little change in, in your own history would have been for good or ill? It's true of history as well. One prominent historian, H.R. Trevor Rover, 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 said, look, at any given moment, there are alternatives, real alternatives. And how can we explain what happened and why if we only look at what happened and never consider the alternatives? And to illustrate this, I promise you this is not going to be a lengthy reading, because after the questions, there will be, I hope you understand this, mandatory book purchases. <laughs> The halls have been locked, uh, and it could turn really ugly. Anyway, I am going to read you very briefly the opening to illustrate my point. It was Thursday, July 14th, 1960, in room 9. I, I mean, it's, it's uh, uh, how many people are doing something bad that they're not doing anything about today? 
<laughs> again and again, John Kennedy had assured the unions, the civil rights leaders, the liberals, the intellectuals, that Lyndon Johnson would never be his choice as a running mate. And yet now, little more than 12 hours after Kennedy had won the nomination with a margin, by the way, of five delegates, he had offered the second slot on the ticket to Johnson, and Johnson had accepted. I was so furious I could hardly talk, O'Donnell remembered. I thought of the promises we had made and the assurances we'd given. I thought we'd been double-crossed. So we demanded to see Senator Kennedy, went up to his hotel suite. Kennedy took him aside, and this is what Kennedy said. I'm 43 years old. I'm the healthiest candidate for president in the United States. You've traveled me enough to know I am not going to die in office. So the vice presidency doesn't mean anything. <laughs> now, the man who, who gave this reassurance had almost died in World War II when his PT boat was around, had lost a brother and a sister in plane crashes, had been so stricken with illness all his life, his statement about health was palpably untrue, that in 1947, he'd been given the last rites of his church, had survived a life-threatening operation in 1954 uh, that almost cost him his ability to walk, if not his life, had been living with a form of Addison's disease, which had been concealed from the public, that made most of his daily existence one of great pain, uh, and had come within a razor-thin margin of uh, losing the presidential nomination. And by the way, some months later, he would, have, he would come seconds away from being killed by a suicide bomber in Palm Beach, Florida, parked outside his house. One of the most ignored facts of American history, one I wrote about in a prior book. So this is a guy who's described by a lot of his close associates as fatalistic, who on the morning of his death had said to both Kenny O'Donnell and his wife, if there's someone with a high-powered rifle in a building, there's nothing I can do about that. And yet somehow, in giving this assurance to Kenny O'Donnell that, John, that he'd there was no chance he was going to die, he completely ignored what had been part of his life and the national life, the role of fate. Kennedy was, was himself a, something of a historian and must have known that seven presidents before him had died while in office. And yet it's not the way we think. We just don't pay attention to the near misses. Everybody knows that Franklin Roosevelt was the longest serving president of the United States. Some of you may know that uh, in, in early 1933, as president-elect visiting Miami uh, at Bayfront Park, a deranged anarchist named Giuseppe Zangara came to that park with a gun. Having gotten there a little late, could not find a proper angle from which to aim at the president, stood on a chair, a passerby jostled him, and Giuseppe Zangara killed not FDR, but the man standing very close to him, the visiting mayor of Chicago. And I ask you to imagine the depression or the mobilization that led to World War II had Franklin Roosevelt not been there. Two years earlier, a visiting British politician here in New York, crossing Fifth Avenue, looked the wrong way, because the cars in Britain go the wrong way, hit by a taxi cab, went to a, taken to a hospital, developed pleurisy, almost died. Imagine 1940 in Britain without that politician, who, of course, was Winston Churchill. That's why this matters. And so uh, what I want to do now is to suggest to you my notion of what would have happened had John Kennedy survived Dallas. Um, I think, by the way, to do this um, honestly, as opposed to speculatively, you need to ground yourself in history. You, you can't make up, you can, if you're a science fiction or a fantasy writer, yeah, you know, what if Kennedy had become a Buddhist? Well, that's kind of mildly interesting, but it's ridiculous. <laughs> the more serious stuff is look at the person, look at the conditions in the country at that time, 
as, uh, read the oral histories, read the memoirs, see if you can figure out how he thought and how he might have dealt with the life of the United States that he did not live to deal with. So the first obvious question is, so what is the small twist of fate I'm talking about that might have saved John Kennedy in Dallas 50 years ago? It's the weather. All day, all that morning, all that Friday, it had rained. And as Kennedy's plane was coming to Dallas, the skies cleared and the sun came out. Kennedy weather, his aides called it, because he wanted to see and be seen. That's why he'd gone to Texas to demonstrate to skeptical Southern Democrats that he was popular. So a young uh, newspaper man in Dallas named Jim Lehrer was standing next to the Secret Service chief and said, my editor wants to know uh, what's going to what, what, what's gonna happen with the bubble top. And the Secret Service chief said, let me call downtown. He called downtown. They told him the sun was out. He said, take the bubble top off. If the rain had done what the forecasters said it was going to do and continued, and the, the bubble top would have stayed on. Not to be sure uh, bulletproof. One of the weird things about you learn is the car was bulletproof, but not the top. But imagine rain instead of sun. Imagine the bubble top instead of a clear shot. And the assassin, and just to get this out of the way, Yes, I think it was Lee Harvey Oswald. Yes, I think he did it by himself. No, I don't plan to relitigate it, but just so you know. But that assassin would have had a much tougher shot. The first shot would have shattered the bubble top. The driver of that car, who in real life slowed down because he didn't know what was happening, would have taken off like a shot. And the odds increased dramatically that Kennedy might have been wounded, but would have survived. That, at any rate, is the premise of the book. And I think it does fit the test of plausibility. So then what? What, what? what begins to happen? You know, you, you change that one little ripple. What ripples then flow from that that are become increasingly dramatically different than the life we lived in? Well, for one thing, there's the fate of Lyndon Johnson. If you've read Robert Caro's latest book, and all of us must pray daily for the health of this man, <laughs> that he survives in good health to do the, the, the last book. I think he should be taken into protective custody. <laughs> I mean, it's such a magnificent work, and, the, and the, 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 the climax is yet to come. But if you've read Caro's book, you know what I'm talking about. The very day John Kennedy was shot, the moment his motorcade was rolling down Main Street. Well, as Jefferson something That posed a mortal threat to the political life of Lyndon Johnson. A Senate committee was looking into- It's not the proprietors of the people. Because Columbia was King's College and it was Anglican and there was going to be a tax that everybody had to pay. Everybody had to pay. And he said, you know what? Most of us in New York aren't Anglicans. Um, why should everybody be taxed um, for the purposes of just... Sectarian. Yeah, he said, you know. And furthermore, then this led him to the idea of free thought and how there must be any orthodoxy. And he was like John Stuart Mill, you know, and he was like James Madison in a way in believing that, and James Madison read him when he was a student at Princeton. Mm -hmm. uh, so I start with him, uh, and he is, you know, the first great intellectual influence on the, on the, on the founding. This magazine, everybody read it, everybody, it wasn't just a book, everybody all over America got it, subscribed to it. Uh, the, the Madison and his fellow students at Princeton uh, were still reading it 20 some years later. Mm -hmm. um, so then I moved to the Lees of Stratford Hall. It was the house that, it was the house that, that thing. Uh -huh. 
I saw this house on a book cover. Um, I said, oh my God. It's an odd house. No, it's gorgeous. I know you think it's odd, but Rick, go there. I mean, that's probably the only one you haven't been to. Uh, it is so beautiful. And in fact, the, you know, the, the, the dean of the British art historian, Sir John Somerset, um, says this house is so architecturally sophisticated that you'd think it had been designed by a British royal architect, <laughs> or a Portsmouth. But it wasn't. It was designed by a, by, by Virginia-born William Wilkins, I think his name was. Nobody knows. Uh -huh. Nobody knows anything about it. Maybe my judgment of the house is affected by the oddity of the inhabitants. <laughs> well, because between 1960 and 64, his belated but ultimately all-out embrace of civil rights had made the South virtually unwinnable for him. A poll came, that was taken shortly before his death showed that he would, he would lose the old Confederacy by a margin of 20 points to almost any Republican. And if you remember, in 1960, it was Kennedy's victories in Texas, Georgia, South Carolina, half of Alabama, um, Louisiana, that provided a critical electoral margin. Also, the tensions in the early 60s, before the first race riots, between white working class and blacks in big cities was already fomenting. In Boston, in Philadelphia, in New York, tensions over school integration and housing and uh, craft jobs that construction unions had kept for their own members and that African Americans wanted into had produced real feelings of discontent. Bobby Kennedy, for whom I worked in, there was no public figure I admire more, said bluntly at the time, civil rights is something around our neck, meaning it was a political liability. As the one meeting that, that Kennedy and his aides had about the 64 campaign before he left for Texas, um, they were not that worried about Nelson Rockefeller because of his divorce and remarriage, they, they, which indeed turned out to be politically fatal. The candidate that most, the potential candidate that most worried them was Romney, George, the father. <laughs> Governor of Michigan, very strong civil rights record, uh, very strong appeal across party lines, and uh, absolutely blameless private life. One of, I think one of the Kennedys said, he doesn't smoke, he doesn't drink. The guy with no vices, that's a little weird, which you can, under, given Kennedy's own life, you can understand. <laughs> That may have seemed puzzling, but the man they wanted to run against, and the man I believe they would have run against, was, was Goldwater. Because even before Dallas, he was headed to the nomination, the Republican conservatives having been burned for a couple of decades, never getting their man nominated, their man mostly being Robert Taft, finally said, that's it, it's our turn. Um, and what Kennedy said at that meeting was, please give me Barry Goldwater, I won't even have to leave the White House. And the reason, I think, was that what, whatever the difficulties over race, the issue of war and peace, in the, still in the shadow of the Cuban Missile Crisis, would, I think, have overwhelmed everything. Um, I don't think he would have won by the same margin as Johnson did, because Johnson won all but uh, four, four or five southern states. But he, I think he would have won. I also should tell you that this is an est esteemed, serious institution. But when I do these books, I have to have some lighter moments. So my notion is that Goldwater, rather than picking Bill Miller, picks as his running mate 
a 51-year-old, 15-year veteran of the House from the Midwest, war hero, Jerry Ford, who gets up uh, to give a speech, loses control of the gavel, and cold cocks Senator William Nolan. <laughs> I know, you don't, you don't win Pulitzers for that, I understand that. But, you know, I did, one of the things that they never mentioned in my bio is I did used to write for the National Lampoon in an earlier life, so. Um, so, you know, somewhat more seriously uh, in playing with plausibility, I do have a Kennedy-Goldwater debate. Uh, there is an urban myth that Goldwater told that he and Kennedy had agreed to do these Lincoln-Douglas debates. They'd fly from city to city and they'd do these old-fashioned debates. This is more than speculation, although I have Michael Beschloss as a, as a witness. There is no way any incumbent president would give to his rival that kind of platform. Indeed, we learn over and over again that incumbent presidents really have a tough time, particularly in that first debate, because the, you know, the, the, the challenger is automatically elevated to, to his and someday her level. So I do that. I have, a, I have Kennedy winning re-election. I have a second inaugural. I've, took the liberty of rewriting some rock and roll lyrics that are sung in his honor, because that's also some fun. But now we get to what is probably the most single consequential uh, question, the one that's always asked, which is, what about Vietnam? Now there's a, look, there are, there are people, there are Kennedy acolytes who insist they know he wouldn't have escalated. There are conservatives, there's a new book out called JFK Conservative that argue, just look at what he said during the campaign, look at the fact that he'd sent advisors there, look at his embrace of the domino theory, sure he would have uh, escalated. My own take on this is that, that the probabilities are that he would not. And the reasons are, are manifold. Um, he'd been there early in his career as a congressman, he'd always understood, as very few American politicians did, the power of nationalism in the third world, he thought the French had, had been foolish trying to hold on to their empire in Vietnam. Over the course of his presidency, he had grown increasingly skeptical about what the military was telling him, starting with the Bay of Pigs, and constantly pushed back. It's, it's hard to believe this, but in, in early, as he was becoming president, he was being urged by the military and by President Eisenhower, you gotta put troops into Laos. And if the Chinese show up, we might have to use tactical nukes. The advisors that he sent in, which history will not judge kindly, I think, was in part a way to, to, to straddle that difference, to not say no all the time. But he'd said no, to the, he'd said no to the military on going to the Bay of Pigs. He said no to the military in striking at the missile crisis. And the missile crisis itself had a profound effect on him. I mean, this is somebody who came, along with Nikita Khrushchev, fairly close to incinerating a good population of the globe. And Dean Rusk, no dove he, said, no one who went through the missile crisis came out the way he came in. Which is why, in June of 1963, Kennedy made a speech at American University that is jaw-dropping in its contrast to how he ran for president in 1960. We've got to reassess our relations with the Soviet Union. We've got to rethink how we deal with the world. We can't, there are, there are going to be countries whose social systems we don't like, but we're going to have to live with them. Now, he was no, he was no Henry Wallace. <laughs> he had no illusions about the Soviet Union. The speech at the Berlin Wall shows that. But a few weeks after, he said, you know, maybe we can't deal with these folks. Let them come to Berlin. He signed the nuclear test ban treaty. Um, so what I have done in this book 
is to try to pull together all the strains that I could and, and create an obviously fictional meeting in 1964 where Kennedy brings in all of his advisors, most of whom, but not all of whom, were interventionist-minded because they believed in the, in the basic Cold War domino theory bipolar world. And at the end of the meeting, and there's a reason I'm reading this short paragraph to you, because it will suggest to you how I approach this. This is what Kennedy says. He turns to um, uh, McNamara and he says, it seems to me that the heart of the issue is we need to find a way out without just walking away. I've said this to Kenny O'Donnell, I've said it to Charlie Bartlett, I've said it to Senator Mansfield. We don't have a prayer of staying in Vietnam. Those people hate us. They're going to throw our asses out of there at almost any point. But if I give up a piece of territory to the communists, I can't get reelected. If I tried that, we'd have another McCarthy scare on our hands. But I can do it after I'm reelected, even if I become a very unpopular president. So he said with a grin, you guys have to make damn sure I'm reelected. Now what's the, what's the incredible leap of imagination that I use to write this? He said every one of those words before he died at different points. Every one of those words comes from the mouth of John Kennedy. Now you, you can get an argument that, you know, well, he would have faced the same um, dilemmas that Johnson did, but just since you like history, th this is where I think the conventional historians miss the point. They say, well, what, what do you think John Kennedy would have done in January of 65 with the Viet Cong on the march and then blowing up a barracks in South Vietnam? The assumption behind that is that the, la the 13 intervening months would have been exactly the same whether John Kennedy had been president or Lyndon Johnson. And that, to me, is highly dubious. They were very different people. It was Johnson who said two days after Kennedy's death, I'm not going to be the first president to lose a war. That's not the way Kennedy thought. He was in some cases not for good, but in this case probably, he was detached. He, he was very kind of cool about that. He did not um, see his own manhood, if, you want, if I can put it that way, embroiled in that kind of uh, decision. So my feeling is you would have seen him tap dance his way through 1964 and kind of not, he would, nobody would have, no American president back then would have gone on TV and said, my fellow Americans, let me tell you straight out, we can't win this thing. That country's going to go communist one or the other. And you know what? We can live with that, which, as it turns out, we could. In, Arthur Schlesinger told Kennedy, Doris Goodwin told me, he once said to Kennedy, trying to get out of Vietnam is going to be harder for you than it was for Franklin Roosevelt to commit the United States to helping Britain because we have a Cold War set of premises that you're going to have to be challenging. But my feeling is he would have. And, and I will show you in a minute why I think that is significant. On the other hand, when it comes to an issue like civil rights, great society, poverty programs, Kennedy was less conventionally liberal than Johnson. Johnson wanted to be the second FDR. He'd grown up as a, as a where FDR as his hero. His first job was working for the Roosevelt administration. Remember who Kennedy's dad was. Joe Kennedy and FDR were not exactly <clears throat> bosom buddies. But beyond that, Kennedy's detachment also played out in domestic life. He was a bit of a skeptic. It's, it's unimaginable to me that Kennedy would ever have given a speech declaring a war on poverty or called for a great society. That's not how he thought. 
and even on civil rights, which he came to pretty late. He was not a civil rights leader in the Senate. He was temporizing the first couple of years. It was the Birmingham uprising that forced his hand. One of his only black aides said to him once, you care more about Germany than Alabama. And that was true. One of the things, if you, if you doubt this, go back and look at Kennedy's inaugural, the famous inaugural. You know how many sentences in that inaugural are devoted to domestic affairs? One. His civil rights aides insisted that he say, we cannot defend freedom abroad if we cannot defend freedom at home. That's it. Everything else is directed at the world because that was his focus. In addition to which, he certainly lacked Johnson's skill um, at, you know, at mastering the Senate. His entire legislative program at the time he went to Dallas was in grave jeopardy. Uh, indeed, it's kind of funny when you read today's pundits about how, what a terrible, awful, dysfunctional Washington we have. They were writing the same thing 50 years ago. We were in the midst of a constitutional crisis because the, the, the machinery had ground to a halt because the Southern Democrats and Republicans were fighting him not only on civil rights but on his entire program. It's one of the reasons why they were worried about re-election. So, yes, I think we would have ultimately had a civil rights triumph because the, the moral force of that was simply too great. But I don't think it would have happened nearly as effectively under Kennedy uh, as Johnson. And the other reason is this. There is in this book an extended telephone conversation between Kennedy and Senator Richard Russell of Georgia, one of the most powerful members of the Senate. And in it, and uh, Russell was a huge hawk. And yet in this phone call, Russell is saying, we can't win this thing. He's almost begging the president, can you figure out a way to get out? Can we get a government in there that would ask us to leave? And once again, this amazing feat of imagination is word for word the phone call that Richard Russell had with Lyndon Johnson. Only in my view, that phone call with Kennedy produces a different result. And there's a hint in this book that what Kennedy is saying to Russell is, I can, go, I can go easy on civil rights if you will protect myself or various part of me as I try to disengage from Vietnam. Um, one more point before I head into the dramatic conclusion of this and turn this over to you. The point about Vietnam, the resonance of it, the reason why I think it's so central to think about what kind of country we'd have, is that if you don't have a Vietnam, what do you have in the late 1960s? Now, to be sure, you have a youth revolt because the cohort of young people moving, as it's often said, through the country like a, like a pig through a, the belly of a python. There, there were more of us. Actually, I'm a little older even than that. More of sort of us. Um, all kinds of changes were happening. Uh, censorship was, was easy enough. The birth control pill had come on market in late 63 and 64. Um, the fascination with hallucinogenic drugs that started really in the 50s with the beats, the beat generation was going. So in other words, you have sex, drugs, and rock and roll, three of the more desirable commodities for large numbers of people. What you don't have is the darkness. What you don't have is flag burning. What you don't have is a weather underground. What you don't have is the belief among the, the some of the elements of that youth, that the country is irredeemably evil. Because we're not dropping bombs 10,000 miles away, nor are we drafting young people who out of self-interest might find the war highly objectionable, if not on moral grounds. So in my book, some of the leaders of the new left take very different paths. Tom Hayden 
one of the founders of SDS, actually goes to work for an anti-poverty agency. Pretty silly, right? Except that's what he told me he thought he'd be doing. Because I, as a journalist, I interviewed these people. In real life, in 1964, Students for a Democratic Society endorsed Johnson for re-election. Part of the way with LBJ was their slogan. It was only later, in the wake of the war, that they split into two equally insane groups, the Maoists and the Weather Underground. So my notion is, you don't have Vietnam, you don't have that part. You have Woodstock, but you don't have Altamont, for those of you who know your, your music history. And I do think you have a much more engaged younger generation in the kind of civic work that John Kennedy did make very cool. You know, the Peace Corps, the domestic Peace Corps versions thereof, I think, I think grow. So the semi -la next last thing that has to be addressed is, so what about his private life? I don't care what kind of an acolyte you are. I don't care what kind of celebration happens in the next days. There is no gainsaying. This man's sex life was beyond reckless. It was, it was dangerous. I mean, when you are consorting with the mistress of a mafia don, when you are having relations with a party girl who is suspected of being an East German intelligence agent, you, you know, you are, you are behaving in a way that is, I think, almost unfathomable, particularly when you give, when you understand what a prudent and careful president he was in using that public power. Now, I don't, I'm not a shrink. I can't explain many different explanations for this. He thought he was going to die young. This is what his father lived. He was an entitled guy. But the question is, okay, if he's around for five more years, does this become public? It had almost become public while he was alive. The reporters were beginning to get a hint of this. Um, it's also true that in those days, there were gatekeepers. That is, if, if the mainstream press didn't publish it, there was no alternate press. So in fact, in 1958, a landlord and landlady of one of Kennedy's young Senate aides actually bugged her room and recorded a visit of then Senator Kennedy to her room. They took it to 35 newspapers and nobody would touch it. What's the proof? Where, you know, they took a picture of Kennedy leaving her home. The only publication that ran it was the Stormtrooper, a neo-Nazi publication. So that part's true. But I do think with, you know, I also obviously don't even have to make the point that in today's media, that tape would have been thrown up on YouTube and 500 websites. And, but Kennedy had the security of knowing that's not how the press worked. So the question is, what if people who had access to some of this information also had reason to try to weaken him politically, people who didn't like what he was doing with the Cold War? And I suggest, and this is one of the darker parts of this book, that the Kennedys, even including the man I admire more than anyone else, would have used every power at their disposal to keep that story quiet. And the evidence for that is what they did during the steel price hikes. Brief review. 1962, the steel companies raised their prices, having told the president they wouldn't. The president is furious, sulfuric. They have betrayed me, he said, using far more colorful language. And what happens then is that the attorney general uses the full force of the federal government to crack down on them, pulling tax returns, expense accounts to threaten their personal lives, sending the FBI. This was an abuse of power. And my point is, if that's what the Kennedys, Bobby Kennedy said it, we did everything. We were going for broke. And they kind of celebrated this you know, afterwards. They were kind of laughing about it. Um, 
so if they did that to stop a steel price hike, what would they have done to keep the president in office? And I suggest they might have used any means necessary. And then just to wrap this up, I, uh, there are, I've read some alternate histories that, that take the country 50 years into the future. Uh, this is beyond me, you know. I, I stop at 1968, and there are different candidates for president than, that, because without a Vietnam War, the whole structure is different. I mean, just think of this, if there's no Vietnam War, the most ardent advocate of peace in, in the Democratic Party is who? It's Hubert Humphrey, who until he joined the Johnson, uh, was one of the most ardent advocates of disarmament. And if there's no Vietnam War, maybe Richard Nixon's foreign policy experience becomes much less attractive than, say, a first-term California governor with spectacular communication skills. <laughs> and if you want to tell me nobody can run for president after two years holding significant office, I would suggest you pick up the paper. <laughs> So this is where, this is where, there's also a twist at the end, which no way am I telling you about because it's fairly clever and then you'll have no motive to purchase several copies of this. Makes a perfect Hanukkah gift, Thanksgiving gift. <laughs> Shavuos is right around the corner. You know, we're all kind of hookers when there's a book for sale, but anyway. So the book ends in 1968, kind of on a, on a cliffhanger. But I want to end and then turn this over to you for questioning where I began. There's two things about this kind of exercise that if it's done with a certain amount of respect for the facts, um, yield, I think, useful knowledge. The first is the contingency of history. The fact that historians, I understand why historians say, look, don't distract me. I've got to look at what did happen. It's hard enough to figure that out. But I come back to the point over and over, you can go back to what would have happened if Alexander the Great had not survived that. Uh, and also, they wanted a small America. Yet they wanted America to be small, hemmed in by hostile powers on all sides, poor, at odds with Britain, and dependent on France, right? Um, well, that's not what happened. And the reason it didn't happen is because John Jay you know, with this stupendous geopolitical understanding and imagination, and with this stupendous American initiative and entrepreneurship, um, just said, wait a minute, you know, I know I'm here to serve my nation's interest, mm -hmm. and I think I know what my nation's interest is, um, and I'm going to do it. So it was just miraculous. Mm -hmm. Then comes Hamilton, about whom you have written so eloquently. You know that I learned that you should tell the story of the founding through short biographies from you, because you've written a shelf of magnificent ones that you can mind. I'm kind of modeling all through of this. Well, you were my editor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't have a hell of a lot to edit, you know. Uh, it was, I mean, sometimes you get flawless company, and that's, that's what I got. Uh, so, uh, and, and on Hamilton, of course, you and I see it the same way. I mean, Hamilton was the man who imagined an opportunity in America. Um, he wanted an economy which had, which had a 
niche for every skill, every talent, every ambition. Um, and it's because he thought of economics as soul craft. Um, yes, it would make people rich and it would make the country rich, but how are you going to fulfill your own potential um, if you didn't have the opportunity to find something to do that would allow you to bring out everything that was in you? So it was a, which he had had only by a combination of brilliance and luck. Yeah, and you know, and the luck, of course, was that he got a job as a clerk for Beekman and Kruger in the West Indies. Well, Beekman and Kruger is one of the great New York trading firms. Mm -hmm. So even when he was a teenager working as a lowly clerk in, in the West Indies, he was already, although he didn't know it yet, connected to the great dynamo, you know, what was going to become the dynamo of the United States. Um, but the economic dynamo that was the triangle trade, which is what people and people were involved in. So he was, I mean, he was, he was gene, he was just a genius. Um, and then I have chapters about the, the Republicans, um, as the progenitors of the Democrats were called. One about Jefferson and his stupendous house. And if there's anybody in this room who wants to get to Monticello, Go. Um, it's just, it's it's the greatest house in the I can't tell you how beautiful. You, you write uh, so movingly about the use of light. Oh, here's this, it's got triple hung windows, floor ceiling windows, you know, the kind that you can open up and walk out onto the veranda. And it's got skylights, glass skylights with movers. And it's got mirrors everywhere. And if, you know, as you know, Jefferson had his slaves level the top of the little mountain on which it's built. So there's sunlight pouring into it from all these windows and skylights, and it's bouncing off all these mirrors. And it struck me that it was this perfect enlightenment icon, and it seemed to be crying out, as Goethe was said to have said on his deathbed, more light. And you don't realize that right at first. But I, I remember you said when you looked at the pictures of the book, um, you were struck by how beautiful the pictures of Monticello were. And that, you know, was it, were they taken on a particularly sunny day, you asked me? No, that's what the house is like. The house is enlightenment. Um, and all its, its amazing rooms, uh, the, the demi-octagon, and uh, I mean, they all fit to Which eliminate dark corners, right? Which eliminate dark corners. <coughs> uh -huh. there, were, there were peculiarities about it. There's a room called Mr. Madison, it was always called Mr. Madison's room, because the, the Madison and his wife would come and visit. So, you know, Jefferson liked these alcove beds. So here's an alcove bed, and I, I always thought the Madisons would come, now when they were, were had retired from the White House, I thought, which of the old couple slept on the inside? <laughs> and how did they? Anyway, uh, it, it was it was really a house built for a bachelor, uh -huh. um, uh, and uh, uh, well, a widower, a widower whose wife died very young, and um, who then uh, most people believe, as I do, um, 
He then took her half-sister, his slave, Sally Hemmings, as his concubine, um, and had children with her. Um, so they had spring choice collections on the, on the regions and transportation. And the slave uh, corridors and passages don't partake of this life. Oh, no, they're, it's like uh, Eloyan warlords. Um, there are these, you know, a regular 18th century house has wings um, with the kitchens and the various service parts. Uh, but the wings are like separate pavilions, and there are, there are arcades. Well, Mount Vernon is a case. Right. Uh, and so Jefferson did this, too, but he inverted them. Uh, so he's got his wing, but they're underground. Mm -hmm. And what you've got are terraces um, that you can walk out of. Uh, and it just looks like you've got these beautiful promenades, but underneath, all the work is being all the work is being done. Sally Hemings has her room. Oh, and the wine cellar, of course, because um, Jefferson is the only man in America who knows a good bottle. And 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 who, who is it, Rick? You remember this? Somebody wrote, oh, you know, Jefferson came to dinner last night and bored us all with his talk about what the best wine was. Um, so sometimes I suppose you can know too much. Right? <laughs> and then come two chapters on Madison. Uh, one on Madison the thinker uh, and the brilliant creator of the Constitution and the astonishing degree of political sophistication and historical understanding and knowledge of human nature, because these guys were not sentimental. Mm -hmm. uh, he was making a government for real people as they really are, not for prodigies of virtue. Not for angels. If men were angels, we would need no government. He said the Federalist 51. Um, right? uh, but, you know, and then the last chapter is about Madison's presidency, which which you and I disagree about. I, I love your Madison book. I can't tell you how many hours of pleasure it gave me. Um, but I think that Madison's presidency was a failure. I think that it was not. I didn't think it was that good. I understand, <laughs> but I thought it was that bad, uh, and that it wasn't necessary to fight the War of 1812, and it wasn't necessary to come so close to losing it mm -hmm. um, as we as we actually did. We certainly came very close to that. Well, yeah. men are curious, so I'm going to open the floor to questions now. And I want to uh, instruct you all that uh, if you want to ask a question, they've got standing mics in the aisle. Uh, before you ask your question, uh, say your name and um, please only ask one question and also, you know, don't give a speech with a rising inflection at the end. Now we have, there are two, two staff members uh, on hand to help you with these arrangements. So I'll start with, with this side. Hi, my name is Peter Goodman. Was the Jefferson-Hamilton antipathy based upon philosophical differences, or was it really more personal, or was it geographic? Oh, no, it was, it was philosophical, for sure. That's a wonderful question. Um, I mean, and it had sort of two bases. Um, one was that Jefferson really believed that 
agriculture was the only decent life for human beings, you know, although never noticed that his agriculture was done for him by slaves. Um, you know, the delight of the husband and healthy, wonderful, close to nature. I mean, it is such hogwash. Uh, and so he thought the idea of, 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 of a diversified economy and a bank and a funded national debt uh, were just plain evil. So that was philosophical difference. <coughs> philosophical difference, too, had to do with the French Revolution. Jefferson, who was minister to France when the revolution broke out, who edited the Declaration of the Rights of Man and the Citizen um, for his friend Lafayette, uh, absolutely believed in the French Revolution, and he said, you know, I, I look at, we never bailed out. We never bailed out, and, and so many friends of his were killed, and so many friends of ours, so many of our allies in the revolutionary world said, you know what, I just look at them as casualties of war. Uh, and uh, if there were one Adam and one Eve left in every country, and that a Republican Adam and Eve, that would be fine. So, uh, and, and whereas Hamilton thought it was near anarchy and that terror was terror. Okay, next here. Um, and Rick, a comment and, and a question. A uh, question. <laughs> the, the question is, in studying the Revolutionary War, it became clear to me that one of the biggest reasons for the start of the war was the way that the war uh, the French and Indian War ended. Washington had done a lot of surveying as a young man out west. He knew the property. When the French and Indian War ended, a lot of the officers were given major tracts instead yes. of money. Washington went around, bought up those properties. The proclamation of 1763 made it illegal to develop it. My question is, <laughs> did Washington have a second agenda in saying, I want to be commander-in-chief? He could no longer use those lands, could he? Well, I, I understand your point. Um, but no, that is not why he went to fight the revolution. What really, what the real result of the French and Indian War was, as, as sensible geopoliticians saw at the time, is that it ended French power in North America. And therefore, America had no need of British protection anymore. And therefore, war with England, some people felt, was only a matter of time, because why should we let anybody force us around? Because we don't need it. Yes. I'm uh, George Shea, and I'm uh, wondering why you couldn't bring in Robert Morris, who was so wealthy and uh, so important, and then he wound up in debtor's prison. Well, I, I'm just fascinated by Robert Morris, and I really, really wanted to include him. Um, but he did not leave much in the way of writings behind him. Um, there's... And That's it, a problem with Sam Adams. Yeah. I mean, clearly, uh, a summer major figure. Yeah. Papers are gone. Are gone. And, 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 and Morris's accounts are gone. 
So he was this great financier. Along with his money. <laughs> well, and, and everybody else's money. And everybody else's. There was a including $40,000 like where's Harry Lee uh, uh, that he'd lent him. So uh, I think so, the figure was he, he owed 20 times more than he had. And he had, and he, and wasn't he just about the richest man in the colonies? Yeah, at his peak. At his peak. So, so I agree. He's he's a he's a fascinating figure. And if you could suddenly go into one of these houses and find a dusty leather-bound trunk <laughs> in the attic and open it up, and there would be Morris's papers, that would be, oh, that would be wonderful. And I, I'd love to live to see it. My name is Jim Mackin. Um, you were obviously very um, impacted by the houses themselves of, of these great uh, people. Um, would you give us a reflection on, on the notion, that's almost that Lockean notion that uh, property is the rightful uh, creation or value of, of what you productively do? And did they understand that, you think, in, in creating their houses? Oh, yes. That's a very good question. And for, for Washington, uh, Washington was always being condescended to the French and Indian War by British officers with royal commissions. Uh, he was just a colonial, you know, ancient. Um And uh, they, they never thought that he was worth anything. So he had this great issue with trying to show that he was just as much a gentleman uh, as they were. So Mount Vernon was the <coughs> outward manifestation in the beginning uh, of his inward ambitions um, to be that kind of a, of a gentleman. However, and this is a very important however, uh, late in the war, a British sloop of war anchored off Mount Vernon, and his cousin Lund, who was managing the estate in his absence, so the British sloop of war anchored, took a bunch of his silver, took a bunch of his slaves, and his cousin Lund went on board with a slave bearing a tray of refreshments to say, can I resupply you? Can I help you out? But won't you, won't you please give me back my cousin's silverware and slaves? Washington writes in and says, you have to think of yourself as my representative. And I can't believe you did such a terrible thing. He said, you know, I fully expect that before this war is over, I'm going to lose all my slaves. I'm going to lose all my houses. I'm going to lose everything that was there at Mount Vernon. And that's the price I'm willing to pay. Well, so that is a noble and there's a, one one fact that sticks in my mind about Mount Vernon is the uh, uh, the English architect and climbing on his name came to America late in the 18th century. Um, Latrobe. Yes, Latrobe. Benjamin Latrobe. Right. He writes this famous description of, of Mount Vernon. He describes it as a new country gentleman's house, about 500 pounds. Yeah. yeah. And of course, this is at the same time that Jane Austen is writing the first draft of Pride and Prejudice. Mr. Darcy has, what, 5,000, Mr. Bingley has 10,000. So, I mean, these houses are beautiful houses, uh, and they're impressive, 
but compared to English standards of wealth and pomp and circumstance, they're tiny. And, and uh, Alan Greenberg, the really wonderful classical architect who's practicing now building buildings as we speak, uh, wrote a book called The Architecture of Democracy about American architecture. And, and, and he's absolutely right. I mean, these guys were building houses for re Republican gentlemen, not grandees. Um, and if you compare even Mount Vernon to, you know, some English great country house like Zion House or Houghton, it's tiny. It's really mm -hmm. tiny. And, and, and if you go up, I hope everybody will get on the train and go up to 41st Street and look at Hamilton's beautifully restored house. But compared to, you know, compared to an English gentleman's house, that's a tradesman's villa. A teeny, 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 teeny little house. So uh, these guys did have their ambitions, but they were not to be lords. That's right. Any more uh, questions? Well, let's keep talking then. Um, are, are they, you know, are, you, are they going to let you into Boston uh, for, for sort of stopping your survey? Uh, you know, I think what I'll tell them is that I felt that I had to wait for everybody to forget the Cullen's book and forget the movie, and that I intend to devote an entire book, in fact, five volumes of it to John Adams. Um, I, I, I didn't think of that, Rick, until you reminded me um, that, oh my god, I was going to go to Boston. I didn't write about any single Adams. Um, uh, you want to come with me? <laughs> well, uh, and they, uh, the, the houses that survived, I mean, I'll just, I'll just say the, the last one, the, the most recent one in time was Peacefield, which is the one that stood to John and Abigail yeah. back. And that stayed in the family until the 20th century. So, and the Adamses, I don't think, ever threw anything away. So if you go to Peacefield, it's like, it, it's like a, um, an attic of, of American stuff. I mean, there's stuff that you've seen in textbooks or biographies yeah. or whatever. Yeah. Oh, wait, that's there, and then you turn a corner and there's that painting, and there's this, and there's that. It, it, it's interesting. So so many of these houses are like the houses that stayed in the family. So, um, so, so John Jay's house um, was a really quite a simple villa, like like thousands and thousands of others that were that's, that's where? That's in Katona. Um, so just up the road in Westchester, uh, and uh, but the Jay family prospered, um, and they added on to the house, um, and you know the house is filled with uh, with generations worth of stuff. I mean it's it's wonderful, and Jay himself never threw anything away. So he has his Huguenot grandfather's green card. Um, and, 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 and you can see it, it's this, this parchment signed by Royal Governor Dongan, who became Lord Limerick, um, allowing Auguste J to settle and do business in the Royal Colony of New York. And it's, just, it's, and, and it's got a little docket on the back, um, uh, my grandfather's permission to stay in America, right, in John Jay's little handwriting. 
And just, just let's leave with this. This was probably the most moving thing to me in the whole book, was the letter that he writes uh, um, Hamilton's father-in-law. Oh, I, 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 I can't repeat it because I'll cry. Okay. <laughs> You'll have to buy the book to read. <laughs>